When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. Um... We're not freezing cold this week or recovering from Colorado, but uh, the Timbers might need to some time to recover from yesterday's game at LAFC. Yeah, their form is freezing cold right now. Yeah. I don't think there's any question <laughs> about that. Or maybe their form over the last 30 minutes was freezing cold. I think that's what we're going to talk about because there is a duality coming out of Sunday's game where for the first 60 minutes or so, you would say, don't like the goals that the Timbers gave up, but they're not playing that bad. And for a lot of the time, middle of the first half, maybe even early in the second half, they were actually controlling play and playing the game as yeah. they would want. But guess what? The scoreboard is what matters most, and <laughs> four to one is a very telling final. Yeah, yeah that is <laughs> that is not a good result. Um, I, I think I, you know, even though you might say, and we'll get into this, how the Timbers played well for portions of the match. You look at the scoreline when it's when it says, says four on the opponent's scoreline. You can't be happy with that. But the issues are the same thing that people were talking about last week when people like you and me were kind of saying, well, it's snow. Let's not really read too much into it. I think the thing that fans are most concerned about are probably the same things fans were most concerned about in the middle of last year after the unbeaten run was over. And that's just the defensive errors. Not the pattern of defensive play, but the defensive errors. And I'm sure we'll talk about it in this show. But there is a very obvious place very obvious moment of danger that the Timbers are just incapable of defending right now. And while that may make solutions easier, (laughs) it's a little bit concerning to watch because as LAFC showed, there is almost an obvious game plan right now as to how you beat the Timbers defense. Yeah. Um, Let's uh, talk about our predictions really quickly and then let's get straight into the defense. Um, I did predict a loss. You did. I didn't predict that it was going to be that lopsided. You didn't predict what might be the worst <laughs> performance of the season. Yeah. Uh, well, what a we'll lack see. of it foresight. Game, game two. Um, yeah. Oh, that's right. Knock on. <laughs> yeah. no, I don't know. I, I kind of want to know if I have those kind of powers. Maybe I'll use them for good if that if I really do. Yeah. No, I, I predicted a 3-2 loss. Um, so I got the sort of high scoring element, uh, at least on LAFC side. Did not predict how lopsided it would end up. You predicted a Sebastian Blanco goal. Uh, that didn't happen. He, didn't he happen. played well. It uh, seems like every game Sebastian Blanco yeah. at this point is the team's best offensive player. I, he, you know, as I was sitting there doing my, you know, minute by minute grades and taking notes, there were two players from the team that fully stood out above everybody else, and it's no surprise it was Sebastian Blanco and Diego Chara. And then everybody else was kind of like, well, some good moments, some bad moments, a couple players, <laughs> eh, some bad moments, some worse moments. But it seems like every time the Timbers play now, 
I'm almost left asking myself how much Blanco and Chara can do. And on Sunday, it really, really was a case where those two guys, to me, were almost head and shoulders above the rest of the team. And you do wonder if those two players can continue to be kind of force multipliers as the year goes on. Yeah. Um, so let's get right into the game. I don't think we're going to do um, points this year just because I want you to keep making relevant what? bets and not trying to catch up to <laughs> You don't like me going for the title. 500 yeah. point? No. No, come on. I want to I be predicting in playoff games that Zarek Valentin will have a goal and an assist. You, you don't think there's value in that? No, I, I want to hear your actual predictions okay. and then make fun of you when you're absolutely wrong. Okay, that's fair. That is that is perfectly fair. I could appreciate that. But uh, let's take... Let's Let's do some serious analysis here for a second and look back on Sunday. Jamie, what stands out to you first? Yeah, um, I think let's let's start with the defense. There's a few things I, I want to talk about with the attack, with with really the Timbers' performance in, in the first uh, 65 minutes, and the fact that they were in this game and the scoreline's not um, totally telling of how the game played out, but. I think we should start with the defense just because that's yeah. the most obvious thing coming out of this. I, seven goals in two games. I, I know, like you said, we weren't out of Colorado. We were saying we can't read too much into this. The, the snow is a major factor. It would be really unfair um, to, to start analyzing this and um, not recognizing that that snow contributed. And I, I think you look at uh, Giovanni Savaresi's lineup choices. I, I think he didn't make any changes. And I, I think part of that is because it would have been really tough to say, you played poorly, you played poorly in that sort of weather. I'm, I'm going to pull you from the lineup after a, a snow game. We'll get a little bit more into that, how that changes after this game. But like you said, um, the Timbers dealt with similar <laughs> defensive problems. They've conceded two more goals than any other team in the league right now. Uh, Carlos Vela, did, they did not know how to stop him. They gave him time and space around the top of the box to sort of set up plays. I, the fullbacks, I, I didn't think, had a great game, particularly... Viafania, um, I mean, Viafania just hasn't looked like his 2015 self, and I, I think he had a poor game. I think David Guzman in central midfield was a liability, and, and I, I just think along the back line there was a, a lot of issues. Yeah, I think the first thing they have to worry about is really how these teams, and I'm going to go ahead and include Colorado at this point, because the way we saw Colorado score their goals fits into the way that we saw Los Angeles score their goals. They're allowing teams to get into areas that are so difficult to defend. It's one thing to give away crosses or opportunities from wide, but when teams are able to drill those balls in from just 15 yards out, they're already in the penalty area. They can just hit these low, dangerous balls right between Jeff Atnell and the central defenders. To me, it's less about what the goalkeeper and those central defenders are doing than how did players get into that spot yeah. to begin with? And we saw it on the second goal. You highlighted Jorge Villafaña. You highlighted David Guzman. On that second goal, you know, they have this moment of transition. They've got Vela out wide. They're two on one against him. Everything looks fine. Then David Guzman kind of waves to Jorge Villafaña, kind of like, hey, Beta Sure is overlapping. You go ahead and take him. And then nobody puts pressure on the ball. And then Vela has all this time in the world to put a perfectly weighted pass right behind Villafaña. Betasher has all this speed, hits it first time, drills it in. I mean, these are things that, I mean, one, that wasn't the second goal. I said it was the second goal. That wasn't the second goal. But on that goal, I mean, like, you're just, you're just going, what's going on here? I mean, that was, that was the lead up to the, the first goal. So that's how they created the corner kick. And then on the second goal, Vela is able to come from his wide position, cut across the yeah. formation, and then put 
uh, Jordan Harvey in the same dangerous spot, a fullback deep in the penalty area, being able to drill a ball back into the middle. So I know there's going to be a natural inclination to kind of cast blame on as many people as possible, but until the Timbers can stop letting players get in those positions, the same position that created the game tying goal in Colorado, then I don't know how to judge the rest of the back line. But I do agree with you. Fullbacks need to be looked at. The midfield needs to be looked at. Those are the places that I would look at first. Yeah, and I, I think uh, along with sort of all the things you point out and putting pressure on the ball, I mean, the Timbers were giving up the ball a lot. Um, they would they would get get control of the ball in their own half, start to try to build um, tra- and transition and, and, and sort of build into the attack, and then suddenly they would give it up. And, and that happened consistently, especially through the first half. Um, it looked like it happened on the fourth goal, but yeah. of course, we, uh, we were not unfortunately there. So um, All of a sudden, Diamante just has the ball. Yeah, has How did that the ball. happen? How did that happen? He has the ball. He has 10 <laughs> yards of space all around him. No matter how he got the ball, there's nobody responding to him. He's able to carry the ball 8, 10 yards, lay it off yep. of Vela, Julio Cascante is in an impossible position because he has to stay tight, potentially having to deal with Diamande. Ball gets laid off. He prevents Vela from playing a ball back across the middle, but then Vela gets to take a shot. There there really isn't much to do once you let Vela get into the... And again, it's deep and on the wide side of goal. The Timbers have to cut off access to those spots because so much is happening there. But like you said, not being able to maintain possession, not being able to actually uh, keep the ball in certain moments... To me, that's 3v2 in the midfield. LAFC is playing a 4-3-3. The Timbers are playing a 4-2-3-1, but it really plays more like a 4-4-2. And when David Guzman has a bad day, you're really asking Diego Chara to do too much. And we saw Mark Anthony Kay have a great game. Eduard Atuesta have a great game. The Timbers could not match up in midfield. It cost them defensively. It cost them in possession. And I think ultimately that's probably the thing I would put at the top of my list when I'm thinking about things that cost them this game. Yeah, and I think that Julio Cascante has has rightly had had criticism over the last two weeks. I, I think coming out of this game... I, I really think it was a, an own goal from Cascante, I believe, on the second goal, even though I'm not sure if the official f- score gave it to Ramirez Last or Cascante. Last time they had switched it off because they had, they had taken yeah. an assist away from Vela at this point. Mm-hmm. So he's down to one goal and two assists. Oh, no, it just had a great <laughs> game. But um, if it wasn't an own goal, he would still have an assist on that. Yeah, so probably another own, uh, another own goal from Julio Cascante just because we've said that before going back to last year. I do think it's going to be a little bit unfair the amount of criticism we've heard yeah, for Cascante because as you point out uh, some of the situations were just him being um in impossible situations because of what was going on on the flanks with the fullbacks and what was going on the midfield i don't have a lot of problem with julio in this last game even the goal that people look at the ball was deflected off the fullback when it was played in there was some uh there was maybe atnella might have been able to get to it amaviala even by the time it got through cascante is ball side but the ball was had been deflected at that point and happened to hit off of cascante and ramirez Again, it's just a situation where chaos isn't being allowed to happen because you're not taking care of the little things before that ball is played in. Now, last week in Colorado, yeah, I think Julio probably could have responded to some things quicker, but he also had ice under his feet. There are a lot of times just one-on-one in the open field that I thought Julio Cascante did a pretty good job on Carlos Vela. I think they need to worry about other things. The Timbers need to worry about other things before worrying about whether Julio Cascante and Larry Mabiala uh, need to be changed up. And those other things we've already talked about. I think, like you said, Julio Cascante is being put in some positions where you would expect people to look bad, and it's not his fault. Yeah. Um, I think we'll get in a little bit more into line changes. And I, I don't know if I fully agree with you on whether Julio is a position that you might look at 
um, to change well, or not. No, go ahead and talk. I, well, I, I think that... I mean, to me... I, to me, he just hasn't done anything that would make you say, oh, yeah, he has to be changed. I think he had a poor game in Colorado. I, I think that, like you said, you can read into that what you want. Um, I, I think he had not a great game in L.A., but like you said, it it had somewhat a lot. Some of that had to do with the fact that he was being put in bad spots. And, and Savaresi is obviously going to be aware of that. Um, he obviously doesn't want to hurt a, a guy's confidence by pulling him from the lineup. But at the same time... It wouldn't be a bad thing for the Timbers to maybe get a little bit more veteran leadership back there, make a change when maybe Julio feels, um, I don't know what his confidence level is going to be coming out of a game where he got an own goal. I do see that as a potential place that the Savaresi will look to make lineup changes next week. And I, I think the spots are there, uh, Cascante for, or Dielna for Cascante potentially, um, that I, I, it seems like Tuiloma has dropped a little bit in the depth chart for chart there we'll see if that changes i think uh morea for one of the fullbacks i don't think that's necessarily going to be for zarek valentine i i think if you're being fair the the fullback who had a, the worst game um of the two was via fania and, and so i wouldn't be surprised to see valentine move over to the left side and Maria come into the right and i i think I would look to make a change for uh, at, with Davi Guzman. I think what complicates that is that Char is going to be out uh, after getting two yellow cards in the game. And so do you want to change up your entire central midfield and, and probably put in players that are less experienced? I, I think that's uh, something that Savaresi has to weigh a little bit. I think those are all great points. I think, I think regarding Cascante, if the coaching staff just wanted to change things up to let people know like these – these position battles aren't over. We're changing things, period. I mean, it's you, maybe we didn't think you had a bad game. We, we did think you had a bad game, but we are now being open-minded towards solutions for FC Cincinnati. I actually think the way that FC Cincinnati has played over the first two weeks, it wouldn't be a bad idea to give Claude Dion this chance because you're not talking about a speedster that's going to beat him for pace. I mean, you really want somebody that can physically handle Fernando yeah. Adi. And that is... Well, I think both Cascante and Dielna could do it. But if you're looking for an opportunity to give Dielna 90 minutes, I think that would be a good one. I don't think Tui Loma is that far off. He did play for T2 this weekend. I think there are probably circumstances behind that. I mean, Bill Tui Loma is still a young guy that needs the minutes. It's not like sending Claude Dielna to Tulsa, Oklahoma is going to really improve his career. But yeah, Jorge Morea, I do think with Chara out and Guzman's performance, it wouldn't be the worst thing to look at that huge depth that the Timbers have in central midfield. And it isn't depth that's going to make you go, oh, these guys are potential all-stars. But Christian Paredes, um, Andres Flores, Eric Williamson, Renzo Zambrano, they've got a lot of players there. And I think that one of the things they really need to consider doing is coming up with an option where they can play three in midfield. And whether that's going to a 5-3-2 that has a Valeri and a Bobasi up top and Blanco towards the middle, or considering lineups that don't have Diego Valeri in it. Because quite frankly, when you see this team in a 4-2-3-1, and a lot of us think that the 4-2-3-1 is the team's best formation. I don't know why I said us. I actually don't believe that. But uh, I don't think the I think that the tim- Timbers should remain flexible formation-wise. But if you have Valeri as your 10 in a 4-2-3-1, you're you're resigning yourself to play a two-man midfield. And so with Chara, with Chara out, a two-man midfield, what what two Timbers right now are you feeling confident in a two-man midfield? 
Yeah, I mean, I think at some point Valeri is going to need a rest. I don't know if it's going to be against Cincinnati um, because I think this is going to be a winnable game for the Timbers or a game that they're going to view as a winnable game even without Chara just because it's an expansion team. And taking out one of your best attackers might not be the right move and certainly a move that would draw a lot of criticism if it uh, backfires. Yeah, I don't don't know that... Well, even though I said that a couple minutes ago, I don't know that I actually would have like the confidence to do that. But when you see games like Sundays and you look at where this team is strong, where this team is weak, where this team needs to offset some of its weaknesses, going to a 5-3-2 that had a midfield of, say, Chara, Guzman, and Blanco when they're all available and having Valeria Bobasi up top, that answers a lot of questions. Uh, at the same time, is that really what you want to be doing at this yeah. point of the season? I mean, last year at this point, they did shake things up. They went to a 4-3-2-1 after their big New York defeat, and they felt the need to solidify things a little bit. Will that be their same response here? I'm not sure. I, I don't know what they're going to do because this team's part of this team's identity, and I think unfortunately, has been married to their formation change that they had late last year. I think it's better for teams to have flexibility. I don't think teams need to define their identity by one formation alone. Maybe the Timbers have gotten to a place where they might be ruining some of that inflexibility because we saw during their long unbeaten streak last year, formational flexibility was a good thing. And I guess my opinion is that it wouldn't be such a bad thing if they had more than one trick in the bag. Yeah, I I think that Savarese remains a coach that's willing to be flexible in formation. And I would be surprised if we continue to see the four two three one throughout the entire year. I, I think he will make changes based on the opponent at times. I think it's a little bit of a disappointment to see how well they played in that formation late last year and, and then see yeah. how difficult the last two weeks have been. It almost feels like this team is going backwards when they were hoping to get off on the front foot after uh, such a good um, end of the season and such a short off season and very few changes with their lineup. Um, so I think that part's a disappointment, but I, I wouldn't be shocked to see a formation change at some point. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I would be shocked if we if we yeah. didn't see it. Uh, but again, I just think it's probably better to have more options. And I think based on all the rhetoric that we've heard from Giovanni Savarese and his coaching staff over the last year plus, they, they like to be flexible and they like to be able to attack opponents' weaknesses rather than continuously relying on their strengths to carry it out. So it'll be interesting to see how the team changes. But I guess to tie a bow on this point of the conversation, let's go back to the defense, Jamie. Seven goals, two games. How worried should we be about the Timbers' defense? Or or put another way, is it possible to be too worried about the Timbers' defense right now? I'm going to say yes to that, but uh, (laughs) not without thinking about it. I mean, that's a tough... I, I think that's a tough question. I, I'm very worried about the Timbers' defense. I, I mean, it's the second game of the season. You can't just write off this team and say this defense is not going to be able to handle this season and it's over, you know? These same players, for the most part, um, the ones that are starting right now, were all here last year and they were important pieces of, of this group and the Timbers were a good defensive team. That said... I'm concerned that this team is really missing Liam Ridgewell in, in terms of the leadership and, and the organizational ability he has on the back line. The Timbers obviously were able to do well in that 15-game and beaten streak without him, so they've shown that they can play well enough defensively without Liam Ridgewell. But going into the season, that that was a concern for me. How is this team going to adapt without their best leader on the back line? Um, and when you start having a lot of defensive problems, 
And you don't have a player like that that kind of can kind of bring things back together, be that leader, be that vocal, that voice, and get things organized. That's a little bit of a problem, and I'm not sure the Timbers have that type of player on the back line. I mean, Mabial is not a vocal leader from um, what I've seen. I don't think Julio Cascante is. Derek Valentin is, but he's not in that central position, um, and, and neither really is Jorge Villafania. Um, I think I'm worried that they're missing that player in, in their roster right now. Um, one of the reasons why I think it would be interesting to see a, a veteran like Dielman get a shot um, just to see if he can bring a little bit of leadership since... Yeah, um, no, that's a great point. I mean, I'm sitting here saying, oh, I don't think Cascante was that bad on Sunday. I think Cascante can't be blamed for the previous Saturday. Okay, but like you're just saying, why don't we look at this in terms of Dielna? Dielna maybe offers them something that they're just missing. And it's not... That doesn't make Julio Cascante any less of a defender or any less viable of a potential starter for the future. But right now, if your theory is right, and I tend to buy into that theory, that there is a quality that Liam Ridgewell had that they're missing, then they need to try to get that quality back. And Claude Dielna seems like somebody that could definitely do it. The alternative is start to recognize that this part of the team, central defense or the back line in general, is something that isn't working right now. Okay, we need to start getting a little bit more conservative back there. We want to play with our forwards going, uh, our fullbacks going forward more often this year. Well, we're going to have to slow that down a little bit. We want to try to play a 4-2-3-1 and rely on Davi Guzman and Diego Chara to def- protect the defense. Well, we're not going to be able to do that because it's just not working. Our defense is getting exposed way too often. And you've got to think about changes in that way too. It's one thing t- for you and I to kind of sit here and go, you know, they're really missing Liam Ridgewell because that's kind of obvious at this point, or at least it's been obvious every time Lynn Ridgewell has been out of the lineup since, you know, the time, he, the time he got here a long time ago. But at some point you have to accept what you are. And if they really are a team that can't solve the ritual problem, then they're going to have to protect for the yeah. ritual problem. And I, but I mean, I think part of that is figuring out a, a central midfield that's going to work. And yeah. if Davi Guzman's not the answer, if he, if that was a sign of what we're, type of performance we're going to see out of him and wasn't just sort of a bat, an off day. I, I mean, we saw some poor performances from Davi Guzman last year early in the year. Yeah. He put things together at the end of the year. But if he can't do that and you can't do that quickly, they need to start talking about their other options in central midfield. And I think that's what concerns me most when I'm talking about formation and saying, well, they really should have more than one option. This team looks so adept at switching between formations last year. But at some point last year, late in the season, the veteran core of this team bought into a way of playing, a shape that they liked. But if you they don't have that buy-in every week throughout a 34-game season, if they're just going to wait until the end of the year to that buy that uh, to put that buy-in in, then they've got to change the formation now. This 4-2-3-1, the only way it works is if all of these players have the buy-in to make it work. And you can say that about every formation, but as we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes, there are elements to this formation that leave potential weaknesses in this team exposed. And so when you're talking about buy-in versus not buy-in, well, if you're not confident that you can have the buy-in from every week to make sure that two-man midfield can match up against threes as it did throughout the last two months of last year, then you got to go to a three-man midfield. You got to keep the fullbacks back. Yeah, let's talk about something positive um, from the game, <laughs> just to you know, just to have uh, some joy in our in our mm-hmm. conversation. Um, the Timbers were only losing two to one up until the sixty-fifth minute. This, like I said earlier, the scoreline isn't really um, all that fair to to what how the game played out for for the yeah. majority of the match. What, what did you think of Portland's performance in the first 65 minutes and what was going well for the Timbers? I liked um, 
Well, I liked basically that they were able to play the game on the terms that they wanted. And what I mean by that is we saw long spells of possession where they were allowed to be patient. We saw other times where because of that patience, Sebastian Blanco was able to pop up at a lot of different places in the field, basically allowing the Timbers' most dangerous player to create outnumbered advantages at, at different points of the field. I like that kind of like Giovanni Savarese said going into halftime, he said, well, we dominated good portions of this half. I, I kind of want to stay away from that word dominance because it's so subjective. But I think if you looked at most of that half, you would say, yeah, the Timbers are probably, given that they're on the road against probably one of the top four or five teams in MLS, they're kind of playing this game like they would want to. I, I like their odds of getting an equalizer in the second half. So I like all of that. What I didn't really like was their, like we talked about, their inability to execute and if you know that you're not going to be ex- able to execute in those spaces, okay, well, then how are we letting Carlos Vela have the ball with this much space to kind of slow things up, read the field? Why aren't, why aren't defenders getting tighter on him? I didn't like the fact that so many LAFC players were made to look good in this game. And so you have to wonder, why does Mark Anthony Kay look like the best midfielder <laughs> on the field? Well, maybe he just legitimately played like that and give credit to him. But when, you, when you're sitting there before the game and you're thinking, who's going to be a game-breaking presence? Is it Mark Anthony Kay? I mean, he was able to play some passes over long distances. That I was like, wow, I didn't know Mark Anthony Kay had that in him. I mean, and, you know, this isn't like we're overlooking Mark Anthony Kay. We talked about him last week yeah. as somebody that, hey, this guy's back. Maybe I was underrating LAFC. But him and Eduard Atuesta, I mean, Eduard Atuesta just dribbling around Davi Guzman in the second half at some point, just carrying the ball 15 yards with the Costa Rican international on his shoulder before playing the ball upfield. I mean, these are good players, but you got to play them like they're good players. You got to give them the respect that they're due. Again, that can go down to the 3v2 disadvantage in the middle. But at the same time, the 3v2 disadvantage is something that the Timbers dealt with at the end of last year. So if they're not going to deal with it in the same way, if you're not going to put forth uh, you know, the performances that can offset that, then I think th- games are going to look like Sundays. I mean, what else jumped out to you, Jamie? Yeah, I mean, I thought the Timbers looked good on the counterattack. I, I think that's something, obviously, that's a strength of theirs. We saw that last season. I, I think that was effective. I thought it was a pretty... Um, I, I think LAFC was on the front foot to, to start the game, and they were controlling the majority of possession. I, I think they looked a lot more dangerous in, in maybe the first 10, 15 minutes. Um, so I sort of quibble with Giovanni Savarese saying the Timbers dominated the first half. But I think after the the initial spell, they, they did really start yeah. creating good opportunities. Um, I think it became a pretty wide-open game. Um I, I think that both teams were getting a lot of opportunities. And so I, I think you there's a lot of positives you can take away from the attacking chances the Timbers were able to create um, if you're going to take away the positives. Whereas on the defensive side, yeah. we touched on all that. Um, At the same time, I don't think Tyler Miller had a uh, yeah. very busy day. So, you know, there was a lot of t- there were a lot of times that I f- felt like Stephen Betashore on the right would come for Sebastian Blanco and you'd, he'd leave that space behind him between him and Walker Zimmerman. And I thought the Timbers did a good job of getting balls into that spaces and being able to face people up to play back towards the penalty box. We saw Walker Zimmerman twice having to make really good plays to shut down j- chances from Jeremy Abobasi and maybe they were both Abobasi. I can't really remember. But yeah, I mean, ultimately... LAFC was able to do that for 90 minutes, yeah. and the Timbers only did it for 60. Yeah, and I, I think the Timbers and Sarresi said this after the game, they have to be better, better on capitalizing on their opportunities or capitalizing on when they get, or they're get they getting into good spaces. LAFC did that, the Timbers didn't. I, I mean, you mentioned Abobasi, and he has to do better. I can think of the one play where Walker Zimmerman um, blocked his shot after Abobasi yeah. sort of took a extra touch. 
you, you LAFC was just better at, at taking their moments and, and being quick about it and, and getting off shots and, and making things dangerous. The Timbers, I, I just didn't think, did good enough in capitalizing their opportunities. It shouldn't have mattered necessarily um, if they had been able to score maybe one more goal or something. Um, they shouldn't be conceding four goals. And, yeah. and so their attack, no matter what, was in a pretty tough position to begin with. I, I guess I disagree with um, the analysis on that Obobasi chance of the second half. Stuart Holden shared that analysis where he felt it had to be quicker. Look, sometimes a guy is just going to have a ball played to their heel and they're going to have to take that second touch. If, if he would have tried to hit that first time... Um, I don't think it would have turned out too well. Maybe you should can make the argument that he should have positioned himself to hit it better first time, but um, you know that's going to happen. Sometimes you have to allow for the fact that the pass, even though it was a good pass, isn't perfect. Um, I I got, thought honestly with Ibobasi, the I thought he had a decent game. The, the opportunities where I thought he could have been better were more just on the technical side. There was a pass in the first half that Blanco played this beautiful ball that kind of escaped uh, some midfielders for Los Angeles FC that were dropping back and kind of surprised Jeremy that it got through and ended up kind of hitting him and then just going straight to an LAFC player. I mean, those are opportunities when, when Blanco makes a play like that, got to keep the ball because that could have been a, a great chance for them. So I thought, you know, Abobasi was generally fine. I think you would take generally take that game more games you didn't. I mean, his effort on the goal was great. Anytime yeah. you, anytime you're willing to take a boot to your mouth <laughs> for a goal, I have a little bit of trouble criticizing much of the rest of your game. Uh, I hope he's okay. I haven't talked to or seen Jeremy since, but it looked like there was some pretty significant swelling happening there. Yeah. I mean, I agree that that was a really good goal. Just the run he was able to make to, to stay on side. I, I think that was a good goal. I, I think Abobasi has sort of a tough situation in front of him. He has this big opportunity to be in the lineup, but he's also knows in the back of his mind that the Timbers are still planning on bringing in a designated player. And if he doesn't really prove that this is his spot, um, when that player comes in, it's easy, it could easily be a situation where he loses that. Um, I don't think he's shown that he has solidified that spot by any means at, at this point. I, I think the goal was good, but he's young. But there's still more we yeah. need to see out of Abobasi. Yeah, I mean, this is this is why this position is a target, right? It's because Jeremy is on the third year of a huge journey in his career. And nobody wants Jeremy to be the same player four years from now that he is right now. And everybody thinks that he can be better. But part of that is, hey, the Timbers have the stockpile of resources. What's one place where they can have huge impact on the club? To be honest with you, maybe <laughs> there are some other questions that need to be answered right now. Um Maybe we should talk about this again in a month, but if the midfield doesn't look better, if the central defense doesn't have somebody emerge, I mean, I guess this is probably the reason why it's maybe a good thing that they didn't just go out and blindly overspend for a striker in uh, before the season started because you get more time to not only pursue a better deal that fits, but you gather more information yeah. about your what your team needs. And uh, I don't think any needs that we would have put on the board before the season have been ripped off and said, oh, this isn't a need. If anything... After two games, you don't want to overreact to it, but there needs to be some improvements in places. Um, now, one place that they're going to have to have improvement that we've talked about is in midfield. They're going to be without Diego Chara in Cincinnati. I think this is going to go down as one of the more famous incidents in yeah. Timber's lore, mostly because it was uh, to use a term that I don't really like because it is so appropriated from other soccer cultures. It's very cheeky. <laughs> what Diego Chara did. Um, I, I guess there can't be very much dispute as to actually what happened. Yeah, no, it, he 
it looked that he either flicked Diego Rossi in the ear or in the head. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to go with the ear because yeah. it's almost it's, funnier. It's funnier. Um, well, we, we can all empathize with the want to flick somebody in the ear. <laughs> yeah, but not all of us do it, especially on a yellow card in take, a take your soccer off. game. Take your headphones off. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, no. let you, I'll let you flick my ear. Come on. It's okay. I've never felt the need to flick your ear. So That's we're, not we're true. Okay. <laughs> that is not true. I appreciate you lying right now, but that is not true. Um, yeah, no, that was that was a stupid play by Diego Char. He's a veteran. He He's a leader on the team, and he should know a lot better because he was on a yellow card. The referee was standing just steps away yeah. from him. Um, and the, there's really no dispute. You flick a guy in the air for no reason off the ball. Well, not, maybe not no reason. I mean, it looks like no reason. But what do you think Diego Rossi had to do to draw that kind of response out of Diego Char? Did he have to say something about the Twins? Did he have to, I don't know, insult his smile? Did he, did, I mean, what What would he have had to do? I, You know, I, I don't know. I, and honestly, you, I've seen Chara, you know, Chara, Chara as a person and Chara as a player are different people. So it's hard to read into what, what provokes him on the pitch. I, I, I don't associate him with being a mean-spirited person on the pitch at all. I mean, Not probably, probably but... 88% of his yellow cards that he's drawn in his career were were fouls that he he knew there was a good chance he could get yellow but felt that it was worth the risk yeah. at that point in time and then you know there have been a couple of straight red cards in his career things where you know he legitimately made mistakes the red card in montreal last time where he pulls down a guy from behind i mean like these are things that happen occasionally but this kind of thing one i want to say i am very supportive of this kind of behavior it makes me feel like i'm an athlete just like them <laughs> this is something that i've i've done to friends before um, I guess that's kind of more of a hazing ritual, but I, I've flicked an ear in my time. And so to see somebody like Diego Chara flick an ear, I just, I feel better about myself, really. Well, I don't know that Timbers fans are going to feel better about themselves when Diego Chara is not on the field uh, yeah. <laughs> this weekend in Cincinnati. Um before we hit that, actually, I, this seems like we should just hit these two listener questions right here about the about the <laughs> yellow card. Okay. Um, well, Ben wants to know, I mean, one funny thing about the yellow card, uh, outside of the fact that Chara was flicking Rossi's ear, was Rossi's reaction. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, you sort of put that aside because it was a deserved yellow card, but Rossi just completely falls on the pitch as oh. if he's been hit in the head. See, I, I feel like if we're going to go into this, we have to hold Timbers players by the same standards, and there have been some pretty epic Timber flops over oh, the years. Oh, absolutely. So. so I think someone tweeted... Uh, uh, something along the lines of that made Milano blush. And then <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all, at least most people know what um, acrobatic acrobatics we're talking about with Lucas. Um, yeah. Pretty classic. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, this is, it's it's both ridiculous and part of the game. I think we were talking about it at training with some people. Look, you have the opportunity to to exaggerate a foul, to take the other team's best player out of the game. Yeah. Maybe you don't do it. I personally don't do it, but I can certainly see the argument for doing it. Yeah, um, but I think Ben has the best question. Okay. He, he wants to know, should Diego Rossi live in fear now that the whole world knows that he can be taken down by only an ear flick? If you're one of Diego Rossi's teammates, how are you not flicking his <laughs> yeah. ears all week? <laughs> Someone had to have done that in the locker room, just came up to him. Afterwards. Yeah, or just like you have some kind of altercation in training and just pull on your ear a little bit and say, hey, watch yourself, Rossi. <laughs> I mean, just little stuff like that. They should never let him live this down. And like you're saying, there's a justification for it, but you gotta live with the consequences of your decisions. Yeah. And now he's the guy whose kryptonite has been 
been exposed to the world. <laughs> and then Tyson wants to know, what's the dumbest yellow card you've seen or can remember? Actually, I couldn't think of a good one off the top of my head. So maybe we won't have a funny response for this. But I thought I'd at least throw it out there for you. I don't know. Dumbest doesn't come to mind either. I think I've definitely seen some ones that are dumber than this. But definitely one of the ones that comes to mind that kind of fits into here of slightly petulant acts, but also something that I remember is something that Diego Valeri mimicked last week in Colorado where he walked off seven yards to where the line was and then <laughs> held up seven. And then Will Johnson got a yellow card for yeah. that. Uh, I think it was his second year here. Maybe his first. But it's one of the more classic Will Johnson yeah, plays. Yeah, Will Johnson had some great plays. I might... My favorite thing involving Will Johnson, which isn't really, it wasn't a yellow card, but was when, I don't know what he said to Ozzy Alonso, but Ozzy Alonso just elbows him in the face and Will just like looks at the ref and like drops to his knees and like, <laughs> Alonso's gone with the red card. That oh, just man. seemed, what Will did to provoke that, That that's one of my favorite uh, card memories. But I, I don't have a good example of another silly yellow card. Um, obviously, I think Milano got fined for embellishment for his somersault. I don't think anything happened in the game, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I feel like I feel like we're not giving this enough time, and maybe that's just because this format we can't stop here and think about it. But there's got to be like so many silly yellow cards from. I mean, I think I've definitely seen overseas people get yellow cards for squirting water bottles <laughs> on ARs and stuff like that. And um, I, I guess we shouldn't be talking about behavior overseas because it's been a pretty bad week for yeah. behavior overseas. But you know, little stuff like that. Um, I mean, there was a very famous player that got a prolonged suspension for ripping up the uh, referee's <laughs> a referee's book and cards. That's I don't think that's the dumbest yellow card ever or the red card ever. I think that incident kind of rocks actually, but uh, I think that also fits into this category. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's go back to a little bit more serious discussion and involving Char not being there. Um, Timbers at Cincinnati. Uh, it's Cincinnati's home opener. That's Sunday at two p.m. Um, First time that the Timbers will face Fernando Audi and Alvis Pal, uh, and also Darren Maddox, but mm-hmm. he's been gone a little longer. Uh, be interesting. Audi, Audi has yet to score a goal for Cincinnati. Um, do, do we think that it'll be this weekend? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if the Timbers adjust to this four goal. Uh, concession the same way they adjusted to the Red Bull game last year. I can completely see them keeping a clean sheet in a game that maybe won't be very attractive, but they go back to the Christmas tree or they go to a 5-3-2. They take this first things first attitude again. And quite frankly, over the first two weeks of the season, I don't see Cincinnati as being a team that can consistently threaten. They had a really great goal to open their MLS um, career tenure in Seattle in week one, but it was kind of just a shot in the dark kind of goal. Brilliant goal. And then on uh, on Sunday in Atlanta, Atlanta completely broke down on that goal that Roland Lamont scored. And credit to Cincinnati for that, but I think they had four shots in the game, and that one involved Julian Gressel being somewhere <laughs> in Marietta and not be tracking back, even though his team was up one nothing with four minutes yeah. left. So. I'm not seeing anything from FC Cincinnati that really is showing me that they can score goals, control games, and granted, they've played Seattle and Atlanta, so that's a pretty high bar in both regards. But, you know, two weeks ago, I think we would have been putting Portland near Seattle and Atlanta, maybe not above them. Uh, So I don't know. I think the big factor here, Jamie, I want to hear your feelings on it, is just how does a team react when they're playing their first MLS game at home? I mean, I guess in some sense, you can let the emotion 
take you out of your game plan and start playing hyper aggressively. But in most situations that I can remember, this has been a big aid for the home team. Yeah, I, I think this is an advantage for Cincinnati. I don't think Cincinnati is a good team. I don't think they're going to be in the playoffs this year. I don't expect them to even really compete for a playoff spot. I also think that a home opener is a big motivation. It's a big advantage with the fans there. I'm sure it'll be a great crowd for that first game. Um, Cincinnati has shown that it draws great crowds. I think that is sort of an X factor here because despite of, despite how Cincinnati is in terms of their talent, um, we haven't seen them play at home yet, and I think they're going to be really motivated to win this. And if this is a game that if there's a game that they can win, it, it might be just that, just because of the sort of mentality that they're going to be coming in with. I absolutely agree, and I this jumps to one of the questions that's on this list: uh, Would less than three points be a disappointment? That's something that we have here to ask ourselves. And for me, yeah, at this point, this is a this is a winnable game. You can talk about this being an emotional circumstance, but quite frankly, the Timbers are a team that last year showed they can deal with these circumstances. They in my mind, clearly have better talent. They have more experience. They have more time together. You can't win every game. Not Those factors don't always translate to wins, but the Timbers really, really have to be looking at this as an opportunity to get three points. And I think like even a draw, I mean, if they play well and draw and there's some circumstance, fine, fine, fine. But on the whole, I think that if they draw this weekend, they should be leaving the field thinking this could have been three points. Yeah, I, I think when I looked at the schedule and saw the first 12 games of the road, I, I picked out a few games as where are the Timbers going to potentially get three points away from home in this stretch to, to sort of get to a point total that they feel okay with after after 12 games. And I looked at Colorado. That didn't work out. Um, I looked at Cincinnati, San Jose, if they don't win in San Jose, I don't know what they're doing. San Jose does not look yeah, San like Jose they to know me, what they're doing at I'm, all. Yeah, San Jose, to me, I've watched both of their games, and to me, they look like the worst team in the league. Yeah, so that's a big opportunity on April 6th. Um, and, and and then I, I, Vancouver with the turnover is sort of the last game I picked out. Is Those are the opportunities. Yeah. It's not It's not easy besides San Jose, I but think. Just opportunities <laughs> to get points, though. Yeah, I mean, they have other opportunities to get points, but those were sort of the games I picked out. And I, yeah. I think Cincinnati being an expansion team, being I, 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 not a team like the Atlanta, like an Atlanta or an LAFC that really came in and, and got some great players and set up their roster really well as an expansion team. I, I don't feel like Cincinnati has done a very good job putting their roster together. Um, this is a winnable game. The the, it being a home opener makes it a little bit harder. And then being without Diego Chara, especially after the defensive performance in L.A., makes this a lot harder. See, to me, being without Chara, that should rally the team. Like we talked about over the last two minutes, there are so many indicators here that say this is an opportunity for Portland to write their slow start, to win on the road, to get three points that are going to be valuable over the next 10 games, these third of 12 games on the road. But then if you... If you're a team that is sitting there going, wow, people harp on this Chara thing all the time. Like, we got a bunch of good guys here. We, we're we better than this record indicates. This is your chance to go out and prove it. Prove it. Even without Chara, they're going to have the talent out there to beat Cincinnati. Yeah. And like we've talked about at various points on the show, there's no obvious explanation as to why a team that has generally been a team that 50 points at least a year in Major League Soccer since 2013, sometimes dipping dipping below that, should become the worst team in Major League Soccer history because one guy is out. But the record indicates that. And at some point, you need to provide the counter-argument yourself. And that point has to be this weekend, in my mind. 
Yeah, I, I think that it, it, it should be, a, a, and it could be, given the, the opponent, this is a really big opportunity for them to to show that they can rebound from LAFC, start um, you know, building some momentum, building some confidence, and proving that they can win without Chara. The fact that Davi Guzman's coming off a terrible game, uh, and they're going to be missing Chara, and so their central midfield might look completely different, might look a lot younger, or they're going to potentially put Guzman back out there and have a player that you really don't know what you're going to get out of them. It doesn't give me a ton of confidence. That ties into a question we got from Jarrett. Jarrett asked straight out, will Dielna make his debut? Let's lump that into a general topic we wanted to have here. Uh, what changes do we expect to see in the starting lineup? Let me let me massage the language here a little bit, Jamie, because expect means we have to get into Giovanni Savarese's head, and that's always a, a difficult place to be. What changes would be justified to the starting lineup after the first two games of the season. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I touched on it a little bit, but I, I think that we're, I mean, we're going to see Paredes, I, I think, come in most likely. Not, um, not Flores? Because Paredes isn't making the 18s. Well, I think that we could see Paredes and Flores. Okay. Um, is sort of what I, I, it depends sort of on, like you said, if they change formations, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see both central midfield changing and have something like Paredes and Flores in there. Um, I would not be at all surprised to see Dielna, and I would not be at all surprised to see Morea finally make his debut. Um, and I am leaning towards the idea that Viafania comes off for a week and Valentin moves over. Yeah, I can see that. If you're going to make other changes in the back line too, or you're going to change the approach, I almost think that Zarek Valentin has to stay on the pitch as kind of the most astute, most responsible, most vocal guy out there that even though he's not playing in central defense, those moments when you have set pieces, you have breaks, you need somebody to just kind of say, hey, this is what we should be doing right now. He's the guy that says those things. So even if you think, okay, well, Morea is coming in, Viafania should be, still be allowed to play through this, etc. I think you have to, if you're going to make changes, you have to find a place for Zarek and the team. Totally agree on Cascante. We talked that out. I totally see the logic behind getting Dielna or even Tuiloma if you feel like Tuiloma has a great week of training yeah. and getting him out there. Bill Tuiloma has proven that he could play that position at this point. In midfield, I've talked about it. I would go to three in the middle. I don't know if they're going to do that. Even if they don't, I think something like um, Tuiloma and Paredes in the middle. Tuiloma being a, a stationary ball winner. Paredes playing more of an eight. Uh, getting somebody that is intelligent like Andre Flores. Look, Rusito is somebody who is limited as far as his ceiling is concerned. But if you want somebody that can do a job and not allow Carlos Vela to cut back through the middle, that's that's Andres Flores. Andres Flores is the guy that you tell, hey, do two or three things and that's it. And you can throw him into a game like the Seattle away game in the playoffs last year and you can pull it off. Now, he's not going to play the killer ball. He's not going to go out there and score two goals for you. Keep Carlos Vela from cutting back to the middle. I, I might trust Andres Flores with that with short of anybody but Diego Chara in the team. So if you're looking for stability, having somebody like him, Eric Williamson played well this weekend in Oklahoma. He looks like somebody that, just like last year, is a step beyond USL but doesn't quite have room in the team. Lorenzo Zambrano did too, if you're talking about somebody who can just keep the ball in the middle. All these feel like really big changes, though. At the same time, Chara is out. Guzman is coming off a, a game where he was arguably the worst player in the team. I, th- I think you almost have to be open-minded. I would definitely consider moving Blanco to the middle, too, like we saw at points last year. I would consider if you're looking for more of a threat at right wing than somebody who, like Andy Polo, has been a good possession player. He's been good getting behind the uh, the left back. I would look at somebody like Marvin Luria, who I didn't think had a great game on Saturday in Oklahoma, but they have options there. And then up top, I guess 
I see the case less this weekend for ch- for changing from Obobese to Milano, but I don't think that would be an unjustified change either. I think you don't blow up the entire lineup. I think you make yeah. the three to four necessary changes to say we are taking this game seriously, and if you don't play well enough, you won't be on the field, and something needs to change. But I don't think you blow up the entire lineup by making six, seven, eight changes. And also, what were the changes that were made out of Red Bull last year? Well, the formation obviously changed, but the lineup changes were less about execution and they were more about effort. I mean, I'm trying to remember who else got outside of Ridgewall, what other changes there were. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would have to look back at it because um, I think maybe, was that when when Armenteros went in the lineup? I'm not sure. Regardless. That is possible. Yeah. And, um, you know, by that point, Valentin was already in the starting, starting lineup at that point. Regardless, a lot of the changes there were more about commitment when you're down two goals, when you're down three goals of not just letting up. And so I I honestly didn't notice anybody that just totally lacked commitment. There were a couple times over the last 30 minutes where I was just like, ooh, that guy is not where he should be. But I do think the coaching staff is going to be looking at this tape and going, when we have our backs to the wall, when we're down, when we give up that second goal that puts us down two and we need these guys to keep fighting, did anybody stop fighting? And I think they'll look at that closely. Yeah. All right, let's hit some listener questions. Um, OBM wants to know, uh, and I guess we'll see this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) What do we want to answer this? Um, When Char retires, will the Timbers ever win another match again? (laughs) Jesus. I I hate that these questions are such good questions. Because legitimately, nobody has explained (laughs) why the Timbers go from a, you know, on average, a middle-of-the-pack playoff team, when you average in all these seasons since 2013, to the worst team in the league without Char. What what is your theory for one player being that important? And there is no theory that makes sense. So I'm forced to believe that supernatural powers have become involved in this. And because of that, I don't have an answer to your question. Maybe they won't ever win a match again. <laughs> we have to consider that. I, <laughs> I'm very serious. I know. Yeah. No, I mean, they will win, but they yeah. also are probably going to have to go out and, and spend money on a proven replacement to, to come in for Charles position at that point. Y- yes, absolutely. And I think much like in Bull Durham, they might have to sacrifice a live chicken <laughs> in order to make it happen. Uh, <laughs> they, they might want to make sure that nobody has stolen Joe Boo's rum. <laughs> Uh, there are a lot of baseball references here that I'm stretching for to uh, kind of <laughs> get all the superstition. No, to get on your good side because you haven't been able to talk about baseball on this podcast <laughs> in a long true. time. Well, it hasn't started up yet. Let's just and wait I am, in fairness, talking about fake baseball because yeah. these are only movies. <laughs> so I just I just want some effort points here. Um, ben asks, how many own goals does Cascante have, and how does that compare to other center backs on the team and in MLS? Oof, I have not looked this up, yeah. but if you told me that. If you told me Cascante was already tied for like the MLS franchise mark for own goals, I I might believe you. Yeah, what I mean, where's he at? Three or four? I don't know. I, I think it's probably somewhere around that mark. Yeah. Um, that's not good it, it, when you're talking about <laughs> a year and a little. Is that a technical um, term that you're using there? <laughs> yes, it's a very technical term. You know, it like it's hard because I I think you look back at last year and there was at least an own goal that you said, "Ha, oh, that was." You, you can't really fault him there. Um, you look at this weekend, can't really fault him there for that. But when you start yeah. getting the statistic of 
having a lot of own goals, then you start saying, why is this keep happening? Yeah. Um, and, and maybe it's part of it is some bad luck, but that cannot be good for confidence. And, and we have seen Gascante, even when it isn't an own goal, make some big mistakes for the Timbers. We've seen what his potential can be too when he's in a good run of form. Um, but I can't imagine getting another own goal is giving him much confidence coming out of this weekend. And I think as I try to explain why the own goals, why is the team's defensive record worse when Julio plays, at some point you have to make plays. The not making mistakes is one thing, and Julio has clearly made mistakes, but fewer than people think that he has made. But he's not making the plays that keep you from making the next mistake. He is not... He's doing adequately at some points instead of actually making an actually good play that diffuses the situation. And I think part of that is confidence. Part of that is having the freedom to be a little bit more aggressive that comes with being in tune with your partner. And part of it might legitimately be that I need to rethink how high I am on Cascante. After Sunday, I'm not spending too much time thinking about it, but there's a pattern here. And uh, for some reason... Aside from his first eight or ten games last year, there's been an execution problem in central defense. Yeah. Um, Robston wants to know, are the failures of the left side on defense as much on Viafania as Cascante? And what are the solutions there, tactical or, or personnel-wise? I think if we're making a list of things to blame on the left side, um, I think the midfield has to be has to come into play here. Uh Viafania absolutely has to. Cascante at times has to also. Um, the solutions we've kind of already talked about, I think it's tactical and personnel. You have to consider them all. Uh, if you're not going to significantly change personnel or style, um, you've got to think about switching up the shape to protect your greatest weaknesses. It's just a matter of assessing how great you think this weakness actually is. Yeah. I I, I mean, I think... I don't think Viafania has been the player we saw in 2015 since he came back. But that said, I, I think he's had some good games for the Timbers, and we saw that last year. I do not think he had a good game, as we've said, uh, this weekend. And because of that, I would not at all be surprised to see him out of the lineup. And, and I, I, I think the more I think about it, the more I, I, the possibility of Maria coming in, I, I'm much more inclined to think that they'll keep Valentin on um, for multiple reasons. And I think part of that is his leadership and give Viafania a rest after that game. I think that, yeah, I, we mentioned it earlier. It's a little bit unfair to blame Cascante when there was other problems happening. And one of those problems was midfield. And one of those problems was sort of the performance Viafania had uh, this weekend. So, um, I, yeah, there, there's both involved there. Um, I still think Viafania is probably going to be the left back in the long run. But yeah it's definitely opening up as more of a competition at this point, even if Maria claims that right back role when, when Viafania has a poor performance like that. And I think this also highlights for coaching staffs, how difficult some of these evaluations are, because in addition to all the factors that we're considering, they also have the instructions that they are giving each player. So in addition to their execution in moments or how well the other team played, they also are evaluating these guys against their ability to execute a game plan. Things like, no matter what, we do not want these guys, to pick an example, cutting back to the middle. We don't want them to play this ball here. We don't want to get them to get to this spot. Sometimes on film, guys look like they're playing well. But if they're allowing access to a certain space that we know that the coaching staff has identified as a do not let them have it area, then no matter how well they look on tape, coaching staffs are going to look at that and go, but the guy's not doing what we asked him to do and that affects the rest of the team and it leaves Julio exposed or it leaves Larry's exposed. I mean, Larry's was quote unquote exposed on the last goal the same way Cascante has been exposed on others. 
I don't think a lot of people were blaming Larice because by that point we know that I guess it was the next last goal. The last goal was Vela scoring, right? Yeah. The next last goal because at, at that point we kind of know there's a lot of stuff going on here, and it's just so hard. I think for for me even when I'm following up with the coaching staff, hey, was this guy supposed to do this here? What, what was the game plan here? To know everything that these guys are being asked to do, so. Just something to keep in mind, I think. Um, Jared asked something that, you know, we kind of touched on a second ago. Does Guzman's performance warrant a central midfielder designated player replacement? Or is Jeremy Ibobasi's decisiveness in the final third a greater concern? Hmm. I I still think that the Timbers need to go after a DP in the attack right now. I I think that is still a a big need. And I I just think there's a reason why you don't see as many MLS teams. uh, You see more MLS teams spending their big money on attacking players than you see in central midfield or especially on the back line. Um, I I think if Guzman continues to struggle and, and the Timbers aren't able to prove that Flores or, or Paredes or someone like that can come in and get the job done, yeah, then they have a problem in central midfield that they need to address. But I, I'm not sure that, that addressing that is bringing in a DP. I, I think they can could still potentially in the summer window bring in a player at the position um, without it being a DP that would be good enough to fill that role while using the DP money to bring in a forward. Yeah, I, I love that explanation because it ties into some of the weirdest comments that um, that I have been getting over the last couple months when the sh- pursuit of a designated player striker has been high profile. And I think some people have conflated being high profile with being a big need. And to a certain extent, getting another goal scorer is a need. But if you were to say, okay, now the Timbers only have Diego Chara to rely on in midfield, but the rest of the team's the same. What is the greatest need here? Well, the striker is still going to cost more than the midfielder because that's the nature of strikers, and that's the point of the market that the Timbers are shopping at. Does that mean that that striker is a greater need than finding a viable partner for Diego Chara? Well, I think we've seen the answer to that over the last couple of weeks. If the midfield falls apart, this team falls apart. If you don't get another striker, then you make do with Milano and Abobasi and you try to win games the way you did last year. That would be a bigger need. That being said, Jared, I I feel myself in this podcast jumping to conclusions about David Guzman. I I really thought that his performance on Sunday was lacking. Players have bad games. I think I personally, as an analyst, need to give him the opportunity to have a bad game and then have good games. I'm not going to judge him by his worst games, but let's talk about this in a month. Yeah. Because if this becomes a pattern, we should judge that pattern. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and last year we saw it. He was Guzman was not good in the first half of the year. He yeah. was good when he got back in the lineup after the World Cup. And that touches on something that I am kind of worrying about because I think we saw this with this team last year. And it touches on kind of like this dirty secret in MLS that players don't really talk about because nobody wants to hear players talk like this. But players in this league know that you... You define your season in the second half. Okay, but if you take that attitude too far and don't show up for the first half, maybe you aren't defining your team season, but you're defining yourself. Yeah. We saw this a little bit coming out of uh, preseason last year. We saw this over the first couple weeks last year with this team where some people just weren't up to regular season intensity. Is that the case right now? I don't know. I mean, we have to keep our minds open to that. I think part of the problem is we really only have 90 minutes to judge this team on because nobody wants to think about that Colorado game as being a real thing. But they've opened themselves up to the possibility of, are you guys taking this as seriously as you should? Again, let's give the guys a chance to show that Sunday was a one-off. But these things, I think we got to keep in mind. 
I think the worrisome thing is that the Timbers have historically struggled in March and struggled early in the season. Um, they've been one of the worst teams in the league since they entered in terms of just their record in March. Um, but like when you look at last year, they recovered when they finally were able to come home into a good environment against a weak team. They mm-hmm. can't wait for that to happen this year. They have to recover against a weak team, but they have to do it away from home. Is that going to be this weekend? Maybe. Maybe it is going to be this weekend. Um, we'll have to see. But they can't wait 12 games to, to put things together. If they yeah. completely collapse in these 12 games, maybe they'll pull a, a Seattle um, and, put, and just go yeah. on a crazy run. But that's unlikely. If they completely collapse in this 12 games, their season could be over before it even started. Yeah, and you don't want to put yourself in that position. And also, it's just not too much to ask these guys to come back off this road trip with two more wins and two more draws to get to nine points in 12 games. Is anybody going to be happy with that? They probably shouldn't be. Is anybody going to think the season is over? No, they shouldn't be. I don't think that's too much to ask. And I don't think if you ask the guys that, they would think it's too much to ask. Wait, win two games and two more draws in 10? Oh, in 10 games, we should be winning three or four. I don't care if we're on the road or not. Well, right now they need to show that that they can do that. These are all the things you talk about when you have this kind of defeat. And again, if this defeat had happened in the middle of the season, it'd have a completely different context. But rightfully, after that game, people are wondering, what are the 2019 Timbers about? They've got 32 games to craft their own narrative. But right now... They only got Colorado. They've only got LAFC. They've got a big seven in the goals allowed column, and they've got to deal with that reality. Let's get to David's question. David asks, are you seeing enough communication between Jeff Atanella and Larry Smabiala? To me, it looks disorganized back there. I think it looks disorganized. I think it looked disorganized in the back yesterday. I'm not sure whether that's a communication problem. Um, because when you're not on the field, that is something hard to see from, from the outside, you know, exactly how much of it is a communication problem. I think when I was talking about the lack of ritual being in there, I mean, that is a concern for me. Um, I don't think Mabiala is the vocal presence that Ridgewell was. And, And so, yeah, communication could be an issue. Um, but I can't say definitively whether it is. Um, all I can say is yes. I, I felt like the organization was part of the problem yesterday. So, I think at this point, four of the six open play goals that the Timbers have allowed have come from similar situations where the wide attacker in the penalty box is either even with or behind the fullback and playing back to the middle. And so when I'm looking at organization there, I'm basically looking at the line, looking how high the line is, because you don't want the line collapsed onto the goalkeeper. You do want some space there because you still want to be able to force people offside or force attackers to stay high. But it just speaks to how difficult it is to defend in that situation because if you've got your line set up, anybody that's already running is going to beat you to a ball played in there. So it's on the goalkeeper to cut out that ball or defenders to react to that ball. But a well-driven ball, like we're seeing, is very hard to defend. You have got to keep players from those positions. It is such a dangerous spot. Once somebody is there, you're, you're not screwed, but you're relying on people to be amazing at that point. Defenders to make quick reads. Now, I don't know if David is alluding to that because he can be alluding to other points. But when I'm thinking about these goals scored, at that point, there is some communication that happens. But as far as a goalkeeper, you're focused on that ball. You're focused on cutting it out angle. You have to worry about a near post shot like we saw Josef Martinez score this weekend from that spot. You also have to worry about being able to pl- uh, play a ball that's going to be played across. You have no time to worry about where your central defenders are. And as far as central defenders are concerned, the person that's ball side has to be has to worry about cutting that off. And then the person that's behind him also has to worry about the ball and then runners. There isn't a lot of time to communicate in those situations. Sometimes the defender in the back can kind of tell the person when a runner is coming. But it happens so bang, bang. I don't know. 
I just, if I were coming up with a game plan for training this week, I'd be like, I'd be drawing like two, put cones in these areas and say, if that team gets that ball there, like you lose, I mean, I don't know if you lose a point or something like that, whatever. Teams just cannot get the ball in those areas. It's just too hard yeah. to defend that ball. Um, She's ops. <laughs> says, is Gio's vision for a high press feasible with the squad and how long until he goes back to the Christmas tree? Ooh, two interesting questions. Uh, yes, I think so. I, uh, for the pressing, there have been a lot of times where I, I thought the pressing has worked well. I think you see from the front, Jeremy Abobasi and Diego Vlary have really gotten good about timing when they're pressing, making sure they're not going before the midfield and the defensive lines are organized. They're staying compact when they press, when they do go. And I think even this weekend, you saw that they were able to turn LA over in those situations. I, I don't really look at what is happening as a result of the pressing scheme. Um, as, as it concerns the Christmas tree, though, you know, like we've talked about through the show, the Christmas tree solves a lot of problems. Gets an extra person in midfield, gets you cover for those fullbacks, maybe pretend, prevents access to those spots by just having more players that can shift right to left as far as the pure numbers are concerned. I don't know. I think the Christmas tree has to be an option. What do you think? Yeah, I I, I completely agree with that. I think what they've been doing is not really a full-on high press. It's sort of a modified high press in moments. Um, and I don't think that that was what caused them to have a poor game uh, on Sunday. I, I just don't see the high press as being the problem. I don't think it worked well in preseason, um, but I don't think they're implementing in the same way that they were trying at moments in preseason. And I I think that we've kind of touched on all the concerns from Sunday and that was not really a, a big one. Um, I think the Christmas tree for the reasons you mentioned for more of a cover on defense uh, it, and as opposed to whether or not they need to move away from the high press is definitely an option they need to consider given how poor the first two games have been. Absolutely. And then the last question is honestly something, Michael, that I don't know the answer to, but I'll tell you what I know. Michael, uh, with reason, asked, does Zambrano have to stay at T2 until an international spot opens up, or can the Timbers loan someone else down? Michael, my understanding is, and I need to um, verify this with the team, because I had never even thought about this until you asked, is that, uh, no, Zambrano is available for selection, but then you're, I assume that you're getting that information from the league's webpage, which has him on loan. And I would say, to my knowledge, he's not on loan. That could have changed between the last time that I asked somebody. I don't ask somebody every day if every who's on loan and who's not. But I will say this regarding the roster page at MLSsoccer.com. I find it incredibly useful. I also think it's a pretty monstrous task to keep all of these things up to date because when a team gets a green card for somebody, they don't go, hey, you need to update your roster page. From a team's perspective, they never even think about this page, which is why for a long time when Lucas Milano came back last year, he wasn't listed as a designated player on this page. Right now, I don't know why they have Renzo Zambrano listed as on loan. Uh, that may be accurate. I haven't checked. But to my knowledge, Renzo Zambrano's status is the same as every other first-team player that was with T2 this weekend. He is available for first-team selection. Yeah, and I, I'm trying to reach out to the team as well to get a more clear answer on that. I haven't uh, received one yet, but we will um, put that information out there um, as we find it. I will say this. For players that aren't available for first-team selection, they usually don't t train with the first team that much. They'll come up when numbers need to be made up if last year is any indication. But most of the time, they're kept with Cameron Knowles because they're second-team players. Zambrano trains almost exclusively with the first team, except for the days before a T2 game, when they start putting tactical together, when they start preparing. So if he is loaned to T2 kind of indefinitely, 
I don't know why he's being treated as a first team player. But hey, we'll try to get those answers. But like I like I said, um, those MLS roster pages, I commend them for even putting those in place because they're so valuable. But there have so many stuff to keep track of that I'm not. I wouldn't be really surprised if some player who hasn't ever played in Major League Soccer before has a tag on here that isn't right. All right, let's uh, briefly, I don't know that we have too much to talk about, briefly talk about the Thorns uh, before we get to predictions. Um, The national team players were back today, some of them at least. Uh, The U.S. players were back in training. Mm -hmm. Christine Sinclair was back. Anna Sorin-Gorchevich was back. Uh, The Australians have yet to return to the squad. Um, and, and Dagny Brynjestadter is less uh, yet to join the squad. Uh, Mark Parsons was also back after being at a coaching class next week. He was last week, yeah, <laughs> uh, running training and and said that he probably was a little bit overzealous, even <laughs> just trying to get back. Coach on the Parsons field. looked very happy to be back to what <laughs> yeah. he does best. Yeah. Um, do you have anything that anything else you want to touch on the Thorns? I mean, what do you think needs to accomplish? Uh, they need to accomplish in the next few weeks of preseason as they have close to their full squad right now. You know, I'm not really sure to be honest with you. I do think that there is almost nothing that we can relay from training that anybody should take seriously. Like I can tell you who I think has been good and bad during the preseason. But just like I thought that Marvin Luria was very good in preseason for the Timbers and Thomas Konechny was very good, has that really translated to anything that is valuable to <laughs> listeners other than who I think is good? Quite frankly, you should not be concerned with who I think is good. Like Let let the coach's decision speak for themselves. So we'll start seeing in the preseason tournament, which is, what, uh, 11 days away at this yeah, point? I think it's something like that. Two I, Saturdays from now is their first game. It'll be interesting because Sundays? I think I think it's on Sunday. I, yeah. It'll be interesting because I, I assume, at least in that first game, they might have a chance to uh, roll out close to their top lineup Um, and then the internationals will leave and so we'll sort of see what this team's lineup looks like when everyone's here and what this team's lineup is going to look like in the World Cup and that'll be sort of our first look at it uh, during that preseason tournament. I will say you know when we were asking these same questions about the Timbers I I said stuff like oh the team is at such a higher level early and players look fitter and things like that. (laughs) <laughs> to me, this seems like a, a normal Thorns training camp. Uh, the one thing that is noticeable is that there are more players there, but that's because the rosters are bigger. and They're carrying a couple of uh, players who are non-contracted players to not only fill out the numbers, but to get some sense of them. They're Mark Parsons... Mark Parsons, I think, loves player development sometimes more than he loves actual games. I mean, he really loves developing players. And the results of those efforts you see in camp, not only with players like Celeste Bure, who was undrafted, or Kelly Hubley, but also people like Simone Charlie and uh, some of the draft picks like Gabby Seiler is finally here. So I can't keep deflecting Gabby Seiler questions. <laughs> and uh, Emily Ogle is here. Um, you know, you see that and it is reflected in the numbers. Other than that, there just really is not much to report from Thorns training because they've only had a week plus one of training. I will say the maybe the two things that stood out to me in Mark Parsons' press conference today that I, I think are somewhat important. Um, he says they will absolutely carry the full 26 that they're allowed. That's 22 spots plus the four supplemental spots. They do not have 26 players on their official roster right now. So I, I think the key there is that most likely this is coming in the supplemental roster players that may not play huge roles this year but the expectation i think would be that before the beginning of the season you're going to see a few um players add to the roster whether that's the draft picks um again you know emily ogle's not on the roster yet neither is gabby seiler neither is sandra Yu. whether it's some of them or some of these other players that are in camp right now um 
so there will be some signings in that regard. Um, Gavin Wilkinson, is, in terms of the big signings, that said that was not going to come until after the World Cup. So mm-hmm. we're sort of the squad for the most part in terms of the main key players is not going to change very much in the coming weeks. I, I think the other point that Mark made was just that this year especially, um, he has to do a better job uh, of making sure they're making the most of, of limited practice time Mm -hmm. and he said that with the injuries last year he looking back that's something he doesn't feel like that he did a great job with as a coach um Mm. that they were building up they were getting better throughout the year but they need to take it needs to not just be a building process it needs to be a right ability to recognize that there's limited practice time and each practice has to accomplish a bigger um, chunk than maybe in the past in a normal season uh, they have to uh, accomplish. And I think that just sheds light on some of the things that happened last year. A.D. French's injury, unforeseen. Emily Menges' injury, definitely unforeseen. Emily Menges is not supposed to get injured. <laughs> Megan Klingenberg had trouble with injuries in the first part of the season. I mean, you kind of just go down the list. Tobin Heath had a healthy year once she got there. Haley Rosso getting injured in Australia. Caitlin Ford getting injured in Australia. There really were a lot of little things that didn't def- didn't sidetrack the season by any stretch of the imagination. But I think it is kind of right what Mark Parsons said today that come the final, the team had had about eight games together to really gear up. And North Carolina had eight months. And even then, I think that he's being generous. Even though North Carolina had to incorporate Crystal Dunn the last year, the core of that North Carolina team has been together ever since that team played in Rochester. So... I think that underscores the magnitude of the challenge because even if North Carolina comes back to the pack a little bit, regresses to their mean, they're still going to be the league favorites. Uh, And I know there is rightfully a lot of skepticism out there as to whether the Thorns can catch them. I don't think with the Thorns it's a talent issue. I just don't see how anybody can look at these teams and say it's a talent issue. I think it's a matchup issue. I think North Carolina has a team that – as constructed, matches up very well with the type of players that the Thorns have. But I also think it's a tactical issue, too. There is some solution out there that the Thorns can employ. And quite frankly, they employed it two years ago. Yeah. And the Thorns did not want to play like that last year. They wanted to evolve their game from the game that won them the title in Orlando. All right, well, they tried to evolve their game, and North Carolina was better than them. Is there a middle ground between the two worlds? Is there a middle ground between this grinded out, hey, we can out-physical you if you want to play this game, style that won the team at second star, and a style like last year where they were really trying to play to their talent more? Or does this team need to have two drastically different approaches, one they play against seven teams in the league, <laughs> and then another that they pull out against the other team? Yeah. I don't know. I think they're all interesting questions. Yeah, I think I mean, I think that's going to be one of the biggest questions this year is how this team stacks up against North Carolina. Yeah. Um, because when you're looking at the idea that this team has made the decision not to change the roster pretty much at all, and the, the biggest question that comes out from that is, well, you did great in terms of making the championship, but you didn't beat North Carolina last yep. year at all. So what's changed this time around that makes you think that you're going to be able to do that this year? Yeah, and as we talked about a couple shows ago, and Mark Parsons said it explicitly today, expecting this team to go out and sign four or five people doesn't make any sense because their talent is already high. Like They're really viably, there aren't four or five positions on this team that you can just go out and find somebody and you can add them to the team that would fit into all the league's rules and be a much better player. The solutions have to come from within somehow. Uh, maybe the team will add somebody high profile in the summer. I still think that's going to be a very difficult ask, but the team will always look to do that, as as Mark Parsons said today. Uh, he said a lot of things today, in case you haven't noticed <laughs> this. Uh, but 
as far as this team's identity, its tactics, its style, its mentality, those solutions are going to have to come from within. And I think you can make the case that if those things happen, they might not need another player. They just need to execute well against Carolina. All right. And on that, let's uh, move to predictions. Uh, We don't have, obviously, any Thorns things to predict. We have Timbers at Cincinnati. I am going to continue being a little bit pessimistic, particularly and had had, Still Sun- Jamie. <laughs> had Sunday's game gone differently and had Chara uh, been available, like I said, this was a game that I, I thought the Timbers um, had a good chance of winning. I still think they have a good chance of winning, but I'm a little bit hesitant to predict a win with Chara being out, uh, yeah. and especially after the results against LA. Going 1-1 draw. Yeah, I, My... My preferred side bet here is to say something regarding Sebastian Blanco again, because one, he's going to be matched up against Alvis Powell. Read into that what you will that I brought that up. And secondly, he's the Timbers' best attacking player. But to me, that's just boring. And I'm going to like institute a personal rule not to make a bet based on the same player every week. So I'm going to say Andy Polo gets on the score sheet this week. Uh, I'm not sure that FC Cincinnati knew, knows who their best left back is. Greg Garza started on the bench this weekend. Uh, I think Andy Polo has not played poorly. I think he was ineffectual on Sunday. I don't think he was bad. But against Colorado, we saw... I thought he was very good against Colorado. Yeah, and I think we also see earlier in their their build-up phase and their attacking phase with the Timbers, we see Sebastian Blanco coming in more often towards Andy Polo, towards Diego Valeri, and it's very clear that Andy Polo is going to be a more uh, active part of the team's attack. At least that's the plan right now, right? So I think that's going to pay off eventually. I think just based on the quality of FC Cincinnati that we could see multiple goals for the Timbers. Uh, Their attack hasn't been that bad this year. Four goals in two games. Enough chances at least to win on Sunday if their defense played much better. And I think Cincinnati has given up some chances. So out of all the players, I'm going to go with Andy Polo. All right. Uh, Fantasy update. Um, Fantasy. Yeah, again, thanks to Mark for for setting up the league. Um, After the first week of our second week of the season, first week of our fantasy league, uh, in third place, we have Real uh, Alisco. uh, That's Alex Perez. In second place, we have Geostorm FC. That's a name I've seen before. Um, That's Aaron Rachels. And in first place, we have three Jeffs, one cup. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and that's Jeff Robinson. We'll see. Yeah, and I would uh, like to thank uh, Matt, as I called him last week, for <laughs> setting up the Fantasy League because it is, it's actually fun to see these uh, standings every week. Although, I don't know, I feel like I, f- I developed some attachments to some names last year. I was still looking for the team that I am going to fully support with all my heart for this first season of Fantasy. So I'll keep my eyes open. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thanks again to Mark, uh, and yeah, I, I will hope to see if Jamie B. Goldberg <laughs> comes back on the list. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. Um, well, that's all for today. Uh, as always, we're Soccer Made in Portland. You can find us every week on OregonLive.com, Stumptown Footy, and Timbers.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, take care. <laughs>